7 of your pew Bible. It is the second to last book in the Bible right before Revelation. It is incredibly short. It is written in all likelihood by the brother of Jesus, the actual brother of Jesus. Now, if you know the arguments about whether or not Jesus only had brothers or cousins or whatnot, well, then you know that. But for our purposes today, this was written by someone who knew Jesus closely his entire life long. He was not an apostle, but in all likelihood became a believer after the resurrection and writes this letter, as you heard read a few moments ago, as a warning. It's a warning. And that's why we're looking at it during this Lenten season when I have been asking you repeatedly to consider the posture of repentance. To consider that our role as Christians in this world is to bow the knee before God and continually ask Him to stop the evil from destroying us because we are too much a part of it. Now, with that said, I want to try saying something else today, something I haven't said very often. It's not the normal way that Lutherans talk, but it is biblical. And that's why I want to kind of test it here. Now, the normal way Lutherans talk isn't always actually Lutheranism either. I should point that out. So for the last hundred years, I know it has been very common for Lutherans to talk about mission. Mission is sort of a new idea, though, in terms of systematic theology, how we talk about what we believe. It was never a new idea to tell people Jesus is risen or to go into all nations and confess everything Jesus said. That's not new. But calling that mission and the entire way of talking that built up around mission, that is new. And one of the things that talking about mission has done is it's turned our attentions onto those who are not Christians as if all of them can be saved. And that's not true. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a Calvinist. Jesus died for all of them. He paid for all of them. There is not a single human being alive who has not been blood-bought by Jesus. But it's a fact. It is a hard, cold fact of the Bible that many will not believe it. And no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, even though we pray to the Lord of the harvest to save, there will remain a wide path that leads to destruction, and many will be on it. The Bible calls them the wicked. Jude writes his letter to tell you, don't forget, you always are going to have to deal with the wicked. And the way you're going to have to deal with the wicked is you're going to have to fight with them. Now, he doesn't mean you're going to have to fight with a gun or a sword. He means you're going to have to fight with what they're calling these days fifth-generation warfare, if you're into that kind of thing. It means you're going to have to fight with your mind. You're going to have to fight with information. You're going to have to, as verse 3 says, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Now, I've been saying again throughout Lent, that means praying, right? That means bowing the knee and saying, Lord Jesus, have mercy. It also means what we've been doing this whole year, learning to know what your Bible says so that nobody can take it away from you. So that even should they come and take the books, you have some of the book in your heart 
and in your head. I did that backwards. In your head and in your heart. But you have the book there so that no one can steal your crown. And Jude writes again to warn you, you must do this because there will be those who are going to try to steal your crown. Now, we're going to go through his book verse by verse right now in this 25 minutes or so that we got. I'm going to try to pull out as much of it as I can. But the whole idea is what I just said. You do have to know there's the wicked. And you can't change the wicked. You can't fix the wicked. You're not going to pay for the wicked. Some of them are going to remain wicked. And because of that, they're going to hate you for being a Christian. All right. Let's just look at verse 1 briefly. I mentioned already Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. We know from the book of James, James is a brother of Jesus. So Jude's a brother, but he doesn't quite get there. He, He says it, but he's being humble, basically. He writes to all who are called. Whenever you see the word called in the Bible, think church. Because the word church, that's a German word that we translate the word ecclesia, the Greek word from. It's just people who are called out. That's the only difference between it and called. You're called or you're called out. So whenever you see this word called, it's, it's the root of the word church. All right. So to all who are called, all who are churched, beloved in God the Father and kept. For Jesus Christ. Notice the ownership. Who's the owner? Yeah, Jesus is. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is what Christianity gives. Everlasting innocence, righteousness, blessedness, mercy, peace, and love. It's all about things that you would think everyone would want. And he even says it's about salvation. Verse 3, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. Yeah? I wanted to talk about what Jesus did how he's going to come back, how paradise is going to be great. But you know that part, yeah? And so I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered. That's what scripture is. There's no adding to it. There was a common thing back when we were still... Back when we were still a culture where debating about marriage wasn't quite a thing, but there were liberal churches that wanted to push the agenda that marriage is not just a man and a woman. And they had a a campaign, a movement. They would say, don't put a period where God put a comma. God is still speaking, dot, 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 they would say. You could see it on banners. They used to put them up in front of their churches. It's like 80s and 90s kind of stuff. But it's the opposite of what is true. Don't put a comma where God put a period. If you do, you'll end up off in the weeds with the wicked, right? Contend for that which is once for all delivered to the saints. That is everything that came before this book in the rest of the Bible, by the way. But now he's going to warn you why. Why do you have to contend? Not what for, but why. Because, verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. Because, why do you have to fight for your faith? There are ungodly people. The word ungodly isn't a literal translation of the word in the Greek. The word in the Greek is like impious, fearless, uh, not caring about anything but themselves. It's, It's kind of a complex word. Ungodly works, but the idea, maybe godless is better, right? Godless people. It isn't really about having the right God even. It's about having no fear of anybody. You're just going to do what you want for you. This is what sin is. 
Sin is godlessness. It is selfishness. Yeah. But now again, there are certain ones who are going to boast in this. They're going to cling to this. They're going to believe that to be godless is to be good. One of the things I shared on my Saturday show yesterday was an announcement from the Church of Lucifer. You know such a thing exists somewhere here in the United States. And they announced that while in the past they've recognized that human sacrifice is something that is not good, isn't necessary anymore, it's too much for the enlightened world, because of how bad Russia is, now they're calling down the gods of old to allow for human sacrifice of Russian troops and say it's okay to let their blood just because they're Russians. Now, whatever you care about, the, the, whatever you think about the fight over there, I mean, you have the Church of Lucifer in America calling for human sacrifice. That's godless. That's godless, okay? Straight up, yeah? Uh, they're ungodly people who, now, he's not warning about them. Jude's not warning about the church of Lucifer. He's warning about the church of Jesus Christ filled with godless people. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, rest of verse 4, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He is warning about godless people in the church. And the first sign of a godless person in the church is that they know about how God is gracious and they decide that's a good excuse for staying evil. You follow me? They pervert the grace into something that is, it says sensuality. That one's pretty tough in English. Not as tough in Greek. The root of that word is pathos, passion. Yeah? They turn God's grace into an excuse for their own passions. Now, please, never hear that I am saying emotion is bad. Emotion is part of what you were created to feel. They're, your emotions are a gift from God. But what your emotions are also is broken, corrupted, and fallen. So they make very poor barometers of the truth. And when you decide to use your Christianity to justify you feeling whatever it is you want to feel, you're bound to end up feeling godless things, pursuing godless things, even denying Jesus. Verse 5, he's going to go on. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And we've spent a lot of time at St. Paul helping you learn to know the history of the Old Testament, how there's two major symbols in the Old Testament, the people in slavery coming out of Egypt and the people in exile coming out of Babylon, both to the promised land, both images of all of us coming out of the fallen world back into the paradise which is restored, the Garden of Eden made new in Jesus Christ. But the reason he calls this symbol up isn't all of that. He wants to point out that while there were those who were brought out of Egypt, some of them decided not to believe. And what happened next is quite horrible. Yes, that he destroyed them, it says. And this is, of course, the wandering in the wilderness and so forth. We're going to talk about the rebellion of Korah in a moment. But his point is, don't assume just because you come to church that you believe anything. I'm not asking you to question whether you believe Jesus is risen, if Jesus is risen. and you know, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. I'm not talking about hyper-introspective searching of your heart. I'm saying that if you don't actually believe the Bible then that's a problem. That's a real problem. If you find it, you're like, yeah, I don't care that much. That's, that, you're faking it then. You're lying to yourself, right? 
And in fact, if you come to church just to show off, just to become something, just to earn something, to gain profit, it's not going to turn out so well for you. Yeah? He has three or two other examples, three total here, of those who were good, who had life and lost it by choosing death. The second example in verse 6 is the angels. He says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then the third example, verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, the word there is porneia, it's the root of our word pornography. Pornography is a good example of porneia, but all adultery is porneia. They indulged in porneia and pursued unnatural desire. Uh, the word there is strange flesh, actually. Uh, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Three examples of warning, three examples of punishment, three examples of how God is not kidding around when he says, that's evil, and so since I'm good, I'm going to destroy it. And the warning again is, don't forget that just because you've been brought out of that evil, saved from it, doesn't mean you can't cast yourself back into it. That's the first one again. The second one with the angels, just because you've thrown yourself into evil doesn't mean he punishes you fully right away. Sometimes he'll let you stay there and he'll hold you there for a latter time. But eventually, third example, the fire is going to come. He's going to put an end to it. He's going to say the cry against it from those who are good, those who prayed out, dear Jesus, save me from the wicked, it'll reach my ears and I will go down and I will do something about it. That's Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. The warning again, don't forget these stories. Don't forget this is your God. Don't forget this is your planet, what it's talking about. Yeah. Verse eight, more about the behavior of the ungodly. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh Reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. You got four things there that godlessness will do. The first one is rely on dreams. I mentioned following your passions, right? Your passions are not good barometers of reality, not good barometers of truth. So also your dreams, your imagination, whatever you think might be great, doesn't necessarily mean that it's great. And if we're going to take this book as a warning against false teachers, against Preachers who tell you lies, a certain sign of a false teacher is he will say, I had a vision. As soon as he says it, you know he's lying. As soon as he says it, now he relies on his dreams, right? Now let the prophet who has a dream tell a dream. Let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. God said that in the Old Testament. Again, first example, relying on the dream. Second, defile the flesh. This also relates to pornea, to adultery, but not just that. Right? It's doing anything with your body that your body is not meant to do. Mutilation comes to mind, things like that. Rejecting authority. Of course, if you're going to follow your passions, if you're only going to do what you want, whenever you find authority, you're going to have to hate it. Because the authority is going to say, don't do that. And you're going to have to say, well, who are you to say that to me? And this can go from children and parents to your life in the workplace to how you deal with authorities when they, in fact, are godless. It's not that easy. But again, the point is, false teaching, godlessness, refuses godly authority when it's there. 
And then finally, blaspheming the glorious ones. Uh, blaspheming glories. The word is just glories in the Greek. And so I, I think this has less to do with blaspheming angels and more to do with blaspheming what God has done. The glorious things that God has done, they speak evil of that. And of course, this has become more than commonplace long before the topsy-turviness of 2020. Because for uh, over a century now, Christian churches in America have been freely able to say, Oh, Jonah, just a story. Just a story. It's a nice story. Just a story. Oh, six-day creation. Ah, probably not. Evolution's more. Makes more sense to us. For some time now, again, Christians have been free to say, I'll take this, not that. The Bible's my smorgasbord. I'll believe what I want. That's to blaspheme the glories. Now, the blasphemy, this is tied to the tongue as well. The tongue's going to come back. The tongue, which James calls a world of evil, a danger, right? It's too free with itself. It thinks too highly of itself. That's, that's going to come back. First, he has this story about Michael and the devil. Verse 9, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. This is a reference to an apocalyptic or apocryphal story. Between the end of prophecy, Malachi, and the coming of John the Baptist, there was a lot of stuff that still got written. This is what the Catholics still have in their Bible, and they call it the Apocrypha, although there's even more than that. Now, the question of whether or not it's Scripture, we'll leave that for another time, but Jude is quoting it. And in it, there's this story about Michael and the devil arguing about the body of Moses. Whether or not that really happened again, let's leave that for another time. The point that he's wanting you to get is that in that story, Michael didn't say, darn you. <laughs> a childish way of saying it, but he didn't say, darn you to the devil. He said, God do it to you. Huh? He recognized that he didn't have the power with his own tongue, even as an archangel, to claim something. But he could say, may God do this, and God would answer. So to blaspheme is to take upon your tongue powers that are not given to you, where instead your tongue is made to pray, praise, and give thanks to your Lord and God. There, then, verse 10, these ungodly people, they use their tongue poorly. They blaspheme all that they do not understand and are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. The instinct. Notice the passions again. What you would normally think and feel, not formed by Scripture, but formed by your own heart, leads you to speak things that you don't understand, which will eventually destroy you, just like Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed themselves. And the warning here is not so much about civilizations that bring their own houses crashing down on them by rejecting the obvious truths of natural law, although you can apply it to that. The issue he's talking about is congregations, Christians, who destroy their churches by not believing what the scripture says and chasing their own passions instead. Yeah? All right. He then has three more examples, all from the Old Testament, all of which I'll go over in more detail at the later service. So if you want to catch that, you can always watch these on YouTube by looking for my name, or you can look for the podcast Saved on Spotify or iTunes, or you can go to sp815.org and listen to it there. I'll get into it more, but I'll, I'll do a brief thing here. Verse 11, woe to them, right, the blasphemers, the wicked, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Karah's rebellion. 
three Old Testament stories, two from the book of Numbers, all about ways that ungodliness acts. In short, the way of Cain is jealousy of your equal or someone who's below you. Balaam's error is thinking that you can earn value by your religion, trying to profiteer on your religion. And then Karah's rebellion is to reject the authority God has put over you, right? So envy leading to violence, profiteering for yourself, dismissing those who you ought to submit to. Those are the three examples. And again, I'll tell the stories at the late service. These, though, when they are in our midst, when this is how we're like, okay, no problem. As a church, they become hidden reefs at your love feast, a reef underwater. You can't see it. I used to surf, or I used to pretend to surf, I should say. I get out on a board and like try to stand up. I wasn't really very good. But, but I, one of the reasons I wasn't good is the waves weren't that great because I surfed where the sand was. And if you really want to surf on good waves, you got to go where the reefs are. The reef causes the wave to buckle in just the right way and create that tube that you can kind of ride down into. But the thing is, if you're not very good, that's very dangerous because the reef tends to be about this far under the water, right? So it's deep water, but the reef's up like this. And that reef, it's like spikes. It's like glass, yeah? And if you crash into that reef really hard, well, you're going you're to come away with some cuts and you're, you're going to feel it, right? So I never got up the gumption to do that. But So the idea of a reef, I think he may also be thinking of boats, right? If you're traveling in a boat, a reef can sink your ship if you don't know where it is. They are hidden reefs at your love feast. That's the Lord's Supper. An early uh, way of talking about the Lord's Supper is the love feast. As they feast with you without fear, right? they come up to the Lord's Supper as if their wicked life is not a problem. Who cares? We're all good. The grace of God covers us, right? But I'm going to go out and do what I want. And it's very evil things that I do. Um, Notice I mentioned false teachers, shepherds feeding themselves. Right? So this is about false teachers, pastors who would see this as a way of making a living. You know, the career of my ministry. That mindset is a problem. It's a problem. Yeah? Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. You gotta love the imagery. It's very clear imagery. Twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, verse 13, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars. Think like a comet. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these. Those are all just pictures of the godless. These, it was about these, verse 14, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. The book of Enoch is one of those intertestamental books I mentioned earlier. And we don't have time today to go into the whole, well, why and what and all this. But he does quote it here. He quotes the book of Enoch and it says, Behold, the Lord is coming with, it says ten thousands. The word is myriads. Myriads. It's more than ten thousand. It's like an uncountable number. Myriads. He's coming with myriads of angels, myriads of holy ones to execute judgment on all. And to convict all the, here's that word, ungodly, asabea in the Greek, all the godless of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The repetition there is a very Hebrew way of talking. Uh, In English, you can kind of be like, why did he say it the same way over and over again? He's trying to emphasize how serious this is. Look, judgment day is coming. 
God is coming with his armies and he's going to hold accountable every single human being for all that they have done. And though as a Christian, you may know without question, you shall stand justified on that day on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, your God. You can build with straw or you can build with gold between now and then. First Corinthians four and the straw is going to burn and the gold is going to be purified. Nah? Or think of it this way. Imagine it this way. I don't think this is quite what's going to happen, but hopefully it'll help you imagine it. So on the day of judgment, all your sins are going to just be, be brushed away. It's going to be brushed away into the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Golgotha. Now imagine that you have to actually feel and watch every moment that he takes it. And so every time you say, oh, careless word, I don't care. On that day, you're going to be like, oh, oh. You're going to be saved. But you're going to know what you were saved from. And maybe now that you know what you're saved from, you don't want so much of it. That's, again, the idea. The godless don't even think about that. They just, they just do. They just act. Yeah. Okay, so again, judgment day is coming. What do they tend to act like in your midst, the godless, when they're in church? If they're going to reveal themselves, they are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful, that's the passions word again. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism, to gain advantage. Five examples, two about the tongue, one about the heart, and two about the tongue. Huh? This is, you can't judge a person's heart, but you can judge their tongue. And when the tongue reveals that the heart doesn't believe, he's not saying hate them. He's saying don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Certainly don't let them be your pastor. And I mean that. All right. So again, notice grumble, malcontent, you know, wanting more for self, boasting of self, showing favoritism to gain for self. But verse 17, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember I said he was humble. He, he listened to the apostles as much as anybody else did. They said to you, quote, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly, there it is, Passions, same word again. Uh, so he's really building toward this godless passion idea, and he calls them scoffers, scoffers. In the Proverbs, I love the Proverbs. In the Proverbs, there are levels of fool and levels of sinner, and the lowest of the lowest of the low is the scoffer, the scoffer. And so he, he labels that here. To be wicked is to scoff. It is these scoffers, these godless, who cause divisions in the church. Yeah, Worldly men. Now, don't miss the end of verse 19. Devoid of the Spirit. There will be people in Christian churches who are not Christians. We confess this in the Augsburg Confession, Article 8. It's unavoidable. What should you do with that? Should you say, oh, am I a Christian? Sure, fine. Say that and then know that you are because the moment you question it, I'm going to guarantee you, you, you believe. The person who doesn't have the spirit doesn't care. They're just kind of floating. They're sleeping right now. And they're not listening. Know that that's going to be there and then expect when they speak for division to be caused. And again, what do we learn from this? We contend for what's true. We don't let them stand up in a voters' assembly and say something like, how come we have to hold to this bit about the small catechism? You stand up and you say, because it's what Jesus said. How come we practice closed communion? You stand up, you say, because it's really Jesus. Contend for the faith 
And then don't be afraid of those who get upset and let their passion show and grumble because they don't like what the Bible says. Contend for the faith against those who are devoid of the spirit. Verse 20, but you, beloved, again, he assumes that you are listening. He does. I assume you are listening. I don't sit here and try to pick out which one of you is an unbeliever. And for all I know, we're all believers in this congregation today. Uh, So again, don't take this too personally, but see the big picture of the matter. Uh, See the big picture. Uh, You are the beloved. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have I made you doubt your faith today? That was not the goal. My answer, if you're doubting at all, is wait for the mercy of Jesus. That's who your God is, the one who shows mercy. Believe it. There's nothing you need to do, nothing you can add to this. It's done. I'm warning you against the people who just don't want to believe it. And it's not like they don't want to believe it in an angry way, although you can see that in the world around you. But again, they just, they just don't care. They're distracted. They're, they're waterless mists moving around, just floating through their passions. You, be different. Since you do believe it, believe it. Eh? Cling to it. Hold it tight. And then, verse 22 and 23, three things to do to those who are weak in the faith or don't have it. And again, uh, it's not always up to us to tell the difference. But he says, have mercy on those who doubt Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Those three examples are, if you know someone who's weak in the faith and they're doubting, just show mercy to them. If you see someone who's drifting, bring them back. And if you see someone who really looks like they don't care or believe, show mercy to them too, but don't get too close. Don't let them be your your leader and your guide. Yeah, the three things to do. Show mercy to all, ultimately. Those who are weak need it deeply. Those who are drifting need to be brought back with gentleness. And those who have left altogether, what's going to win them over? Mercy in Jesus Christ. So your behavior doesn't change, but your awareness, your awareness grows. It grows. And then he closes the book with this amazing promise, this doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Yeah? Your God's going to keep you from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's the common salvation you want to write about. Jesus is your God who won't let you stumble, who's going to bring you to the throne. He's going to present you to his father blameless. To this, our only God, our only Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to him be glory Majesty, dominion, and authority, and authority before all time, and now, and forever, and ever. Amen. In the name of Jesus. Amen.